Hey guys, Dominique here. Just jumping on super quick because we got a little off schedule with some of the podcasts and we're going to be talking about an event for the Reptile Preservation Institute that's occurring around the time the National Reptile Breeders Expo is going on in Daytona. So I just want to let everyone know right off the bat that this auction for the Reptile Preservation Institute is live on Facebook. The link is the very first one in the bio of this podcast. You can also check out the Reptile Preservation Institute on Facebook and Instagram to see more about that. So check that out and let's get into the interview. Thanks all. Hey friends, and welcome to the Modern Medusa podcast. friends, welcome back to the Modern Medusa podcast. This is your host, Dominique of DeFalco Reptiles. Thank you so much for joining us today. I am very excited because today is our 20th episode, which is absolutely insane. And I can't believe that I've managed to do this semi-regularly for 20 episodes, because if you know anything about me in real life, I'm uh, not the best at maintaining a schedule. So thanks for everyone who's been hanging out with us and listening. I really appreciate it. I appreciate the support as always. Um, I just want to give a quick reminder that I do have a Patreon and this helps me get the podcast running. It helps host the recording and the actual podcast platforms that we go on. If you'd like to join below, it is in the description of this podcast and you get a discount on all the merch. So today I'm very excited because once again, I'm always excited for our guests because I'll never have a guest I'm not excited about to be speaking with a good friend of mine and someone who I really look up to in the hobby. Um, We're going to be talking with Pia Bartolini, who is known from the Reptile Preservation Institute, Fishhide Diagnostics, and a bunch of other super cool stuff she does. So Pia, hello. It's so nice to have you. Hi, it's so nice to be here. Yeah, it's such an honor. Thank you for taking your evening with me because I know you're crazy busy. (laughs) No, I appreciate it. And thanks for the sweet words. I I appreciate that people kind of, I guess, look up to me because I don't feel like that's the role that I have. But oh my God, 100%. It's like, okay, I'm going to like expose myself for a second because, (laughs) um, so you know, I'm good friends with Carly Jones. I love Carly so much. And Carly speaks, yeah, she speaks so highly of you and Cody and she, and I remember that we were going to Daytona and she was like, Cody and Pia are going to be there. You need to meet them. They're incredible. And I was like, so damn excited to meet you guys. And then I meet you and I was just like, so drunk and I'm glad I at least made an okay first impression that we still talk semi-regularly. Yes. You made a great first impression. I did not oh. realize that you were completely oh. drunk. So. Well, that's really good to I hear. I might have because... had a couple of beers too, so that, that probably helped out a little bit. But... <laughs> well, we had fun. Yeah, we had a great time. That was a good Daytona. Yeah, I just remember being so embarrassed and like talking to Carly afterwards being like, I bet they hate me. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, what a professional way for me to start this podcast, but whatever. Hey, that's all right. We're... I mean... <laughs> professionally unprofessional to what Cody and I like to say. I love that. That's perfect. Um, so Pia, and thank he you says again. hi, by the way. Oh, hi. Hi, Cody. 
I'll see you soon. I'm so excited. Hey, friends. Dominique here. Just jumping in really quick before we get more into Pia's interview because she's going to talk about an event at the Reptile Preservation Institute that is happening before Daytona. Um, Unfortunately, because of the rates of coronavirus in Florida right now, that event is going to be entirely virtual, which I'm still super excited about. Still going to have really incredible speakers and a great auction. So just know that this event is going to be virtual. So even if you can't make it to Daytona, you can still participate in this event and it still helps out an absolutely great cause. So let's get back to the interview with that quick disclaimer. So uh, while we're saying we're so excited, um, we're going to get into this a little bit later, but for people who don't know Pia, she is the better looking half of the Reptile Preservation Institute, um, which does a lot of really incredible work for um, the hobby and also for endangered species and um, specifically working with a lot of venomous. So we're going to talk about this in detail, but we keep saying we're excited about something. And Pia, can you tell us a little bit more about the event you have coming up for anyone who may be interested? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so we are hosting an event. Um, so thanks to COVID, we had previously done a carpet fest, which happened in February, where we raised money for uh, nidovirus research. And then um, with the Reptile Preservation Institute, we did another event um, for, for that one was a Bernia conservation, but we always wanted to make it bigger into some cloud forest conservation. Um, and because and we had that August of last year, and because we haven't been able to do anything in person, we decided to kind of like mash up those two, um, kind of our, our kind of, I guess, passion projects and things and be able to do a bigger event that um, not only does the nidovirus research to be able to raise money for that, but also raise money for cloud forest conservation. So we're gonna have uh, guest speakers, um, it's gonna be a good time. And we have mm-hmm. some amazing people who have sponsored already. So we appreciate them. Um, uh, uh, Dallas from uh, Wiregrass, um, exotics and um, sea serpents and cold-blooded cafe. Um, I know that I'm missing somebody, but um, but yeah, we've had a whole bunch of really awesome um, sponsors and, and auction uh, items and stuff that have been donated. So we are very, very excited for that. And that's going to be the Thursday before Daytona. Um, we kind of picked that day just because we knew people would probably be traveling. Um, but I know that some people may not be able to make it just because it is so close to Daytona. So we're doing both in-person and virtual. So so, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And I've been enjoying being in that group chat and helping out the, the little bit I can. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I definitely recommend that people take a look. I'm going to include the link to the info in the um, description of this podcast episode. So please take a look at that. And uh, if they are listening to this podcast and have something they want to donate to the auction, are they still going to be able to do that, Pia? If somebody wants to donate something or has questions or anything, feel free to reach out to me. Um, I'm happy to answer I know you can also answer some questions or, or kind of funnel some of that. So, so yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. So, um, like I said, that all that information is going to be in the description of this podcast, and we're going to get into a little bit more about what RPI is and how you go from, you know, being just this lady in Sweden to then suddenly having like a hundred venomous snakes in your living room. So, but that's all part of the podcast, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so I've had such a very weird and interesting life. So, so yeah. yeah. Well, that's what this is for. So I'm excited to talk to you about that. So I did hint at it, but Pia, can you tell me a little bit about you growing up and what your first introduction to animals was? Like what, what, when did you find this passion for reptiles specifically? Um, so reptiles specifically, I've always been, um, ever since like little kid, um, I was into animals, anything 
like even bugs and uh, frogs and snakes and you know cats and dogs and anything that um, that I could kind of like watch and see or whatever I was very interested in. Um, so I always kind of knew that I wanted to do something with animals. Um, mm -hmm. I guess growing up. Um, so for those who don't know, I'm originally from Sweden. Um, I was born uh, just right outside of Stockholm, and I moved to the United States when I was two and a half. So um, so growing up, my parents told me. Um, we could never have any pets or anything, even though every single birthday, Christmas, you name it, I asked for a pet. Finally, when I was about eight years old, we got a cat. But yeah, so because I had to go back from, you know, years and or kind of the school years in the United States, and then I spent the summers in Sweden, they were very much like, you know, we, we need to make sure we can take care of animals and, you know, we can't have a house full, even though that I wanted that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we kind of, kind of always had that or I always had that kind of passion for animals. And my mom always loved to tell the story of, that I was, you know, at some, they were at some event, um, like a little Swedish party at uh, some friend's house in Sweden, and they couldn't find me. And I apparently was out in the back playing with a whole bunch of cats and stuff in the barn and or something. And, and that was always where they would find me if, if they couldn't, you know, see me directly. If there was an animal in the house or an animal on the property, that's, that's where I would be. <laughs> I so, love that. That makes a lot of sense yeah. with your personality for sure. Yeah. So I guess kind of growing up, I always wanted to work with animals, um, kind of didn't really know what, what options there were. So kind of, you know, in elementary type school, I kind of decided that I wanted to be a veterinarian because um, that was kind of the only kind of thought you had as a child to, to work with animals. And then kind of growing up and things, you know, I had some pets and things here and there. Um, my first uh, reptile, I had a ball python when I was in college, um, when I lived in Colorado. But then kind of life happened, things happened. Um, I had planned on going pre-vet, pre but um, ended up going to tech school instead and um, kind of realized that I loved being a, a technician and I loved kind of the nursing care and I loved that, that kind of aspect. And ever since then, I kind of never looked back. Mm -hmm. So we, a few episodes back, I spoke with Emily Grazita, who is a current yeah. vet student. She's awesome. If you haven't met her yet, highly recommend it. Um, I have, I don't think I've met her in person, but I've met her kind of through, through things. So yeah, well, she's, she's great. Um, but I know that one of the things we talked about with her being in vet school is that it was very, like, it's very general vet knowledge that you're learning mm -hmm. to become a veterinarian and you don't really get to specialize much until like you're actually doing your job is the same for exotics. Yeah. And did you always want to do exotics or did you think you were going to focus on domestics? Um, I kind of knew that I wanted to do something that wasn't kind of the general domestics, um, kind of like your, your GP practice with dogs and cats. Mm -hmm. um, and kind of funny when I was in tech school, one of my uh, instructors really pushed me to do um, emergency and critical care, mm -hmm. uh, like straight out of like being a green technician going into emergency. And she basically said, she's like, Pia, you won't be happy doing anything else that isn't like either emergency or something that's a little bit more kind of, I don't know, not necessarily exciting, but just something that has a little bit more of, of my mental kind of stimulation. Yeah. Um, so that's what I ended up doing right after, te after tech school as I did uh, dog cat emergency. But yeah, tech school is the same where you're just learning dog, cat, horse, cow, and, and anything else um, is, you know, might be, you know, a half hour, you know, of one lecture for the entire two years. So I got a little teeny bit of, um, of exotics, but it was literally like half of a class of, of one of my 
my program. So that's, that's gotta be like a, like a shock when you finally get into the field, actually doing something that you really haven't had much experience with. Yeah. And I mean, and that's the thing is, you know, having mentors and kind of going out and just getting experience is probably the best thing. So um, when I was in tech school, um, I did wildlife rehab um, mm-hmm. out of a place in Colorado called Wildkind. Um, and that's kind of where I got my kind of wildlife and exotic kind of fix. Because um, it was partnered with a humane society, we would get all the surrendered um, exotics. So we would get anything from, you know, macaws and green iguanas and ball pythons to, you know, chickens and goats and things like that. And then we would also have the wildlife aspect of it. So we would have your, you know, baby raccoons and like injured squirrels and, you know, birds and things like that, that we were, that we were taking care of as well. So when um, you, you mentioned it earlier that you like spent your summers in the U S did you do your schooling in the U S? Yeah, no. So I spent summers in Sweden and then the school oh. year in U S yeah. Pardon me, other way around. So no. um, That's before okay. we get, before we get more into like your post-grad experience and such, what was the pet culture like in Sweden? Like, did, was there an animal community or like a reptile community? Obviously you weren't as involved there as you were here, but do you know anything about like the differences there versus here in that regard? So I don't know specifically um, kind of all the rules and reg- regulations, mm-hmm. um, but the majority of like kind of the people that I knew, which was, you know, family and family friends and things, um, most people would have cats um, and dogs and things like that. And obviously, you know, your horses and other things. Um, I didn't learn so much about the exotics um, side of things until kind of me and Cody kind of got together. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I will, I do remember um, there was a, a pet store that was between um, my two grandparents' house and we'd, I'd walk there. Um, so I'd walk from one grandma's house to, you know, the other grandma's house. And uh, there was a pet store in between that I would always go in and look and they had birds and fish and stuff, but I don't ever remember seeing any reptiles. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, Sweden's also up in kind of the Arctic area where it's very, very cold a lot of times a year. But um, yeah, so yes, yeah, so I don't know how big their reptile kind of culture is, um, you know, in the grand scheme of things, or if it's as big as it is here, but I, I would highly doubt that it is, but obviously you know, it kind of just depends on your niche that you're in. I just, I, I think it's interesting to think about that because like, I never really think about Europe in general. And this is just my American bias coming in of like having reptiles or animals like that. But then you talk to people who are breeding more unique animals or higher end animals. And so many of them get shipped to Europe or ship to mm-hmm. Asia and such. So you're like, okay, there's definitely a market there and there's definitely a community there that's building yeah. some high-end collections. Yeah, um, funny story. So when Cody and I kind of started talking um, openly about our nidovirus um, outbreak and stuff like that, I had a gentleman reach out to me um, who was from, who lives in the same small ho- uh, hometown that my grandparents and like the majority of my family are from, mm-hmm. uh, which is a little town called Motala. And he has green tree pythons and he lives like in the same like city as like all my you know, aunts, uncles and cousins and my grandparents and all that stuff, which was crazy wow. to me to, to know somebody that, that's kind of in that same little hometown. Um, and then my mom was talking to my great aunt a couple of weeks ago and she said that one of, I guess, her nurse's um, son-in-law is a venomous keeper in the same town. So Apparently you can have venomous 
Um, I don't know what the, the regulations are, but yeah. So yeah. And if you world, can't have it, people do have it, it seems. Yeah. Yeah. So I might've outed somebody, but sorry. Just kidding. That's okay. I'm not going to tell anyone. Yeah. We don't have yeah, many Swedes listening to this I, I, podcast. Like, I don't even know who, what their name is, though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so but, can, remind me the name of the, the place you did your internship right after uh, tech school. So after tech school, um, I did my internship at a place called White Oak Conservation Center. Okay. Um, but we kind of, I guess, we skipped a little bit, so I can kind of... Yeah, roll the, back. So Tell me during, more. Yeah, I say roll back a little. Um, so during tech school... Um, I did the wildlife rehab stuff and a little bit of exotics. Mm -hmm. And then after I graduated tech school, um, I worked emergency and critical care in a place uh, in Fort Collins. Uh, And they did all sorts of like awesome, cool uh, stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. And then uh, after that, I got an internship at a place called White Oak, which is a conservation center that's here in Florida. And um, they kind of specialize. Have you ever heard of it or know anything about it? I have not, no. Um, it is like a hidden gem of Florida. Um, it's, I want to say it's on like 800 acres or something. It's, um, this philanthropist, um, wanted to kind of give back. And so he basically bought all this land and built this like basically private zoo, um, that specializes in species that are either hard to breed or, or, um, don't do well in kind of the typical kind of zoo setting. Mm -hmm. Um, so they do a lot of, uh, okapi, which are those, um, Oh yeah, kind of tall. I know they look kind of like half, yeah, half giraffe, half zebra, and something else all had a baby. Um, mm-hmm. And then they had four species of rhinos when I was there. They have you know uh, cheetahs and um, maned wolves, and they had um, uh, you know giraffe and all sorts of of different things. And it's kind of this um, very like kind of it used to be like you couldn't even it was hard to get a tour um, or anything there, but it was like its own little kind of private area um mm-hmm. and the, they have these like houses that are built there um mm-hmm. that they would rent out for um for basically for rich people um <laughs> so when I was there like um I can re- I don't remember his name but the, the lead singer for the Counting Crows Rob something mm-hmm. um, yeah I literally but he was yeah. there yeah I'm like uh, I'm terrible at music like everybody's like how do you not like remember this you know the lyrics to one song I was like I can't tell you I can listen to a song a hundred times and I can't remember the lyrics yeah I went um, to a trivia night last night and I didn't even know a Beatles song so oh, yeah. I'm like I can usually I get a little bit but yeah I'm I'm terrible at that stuff um <laughs> but anyways like Bill Clinton was there um I think Snoop Dogg was there like there's just like a whole bunch of they can basically rent out these little houses and like your backyard looks out to like you know 60 acres of like white rhino habitat and like there's white rhinos behind your like you know the area that you're staying and it's just this incredible place um and now they're actually doing tours and things like that over the last few years they've kind of kind of changed that but but when I was there um it was the only paid internship for uh for zoo vet techs in the United mm-hmm. States um so that's so nice very very holy shit. yeah yeah and I mean I was a little um when I when I, I think when I finished tech school, I was a little bit older than some of the other um, uh, kind of classmates and things. And so I was like, I already had a house that I was paying for or as a condo. I had like bills I was paying. So I'm like, if I go to an internship on like the other side of the country, I'm like, I can't go unpaid. I have to like at least make some money uh, to be able to like, you know, pay for the things that, you know, my adult responsibilities that I had. So, yeah. 
it, it's just, it's incredible to me. We're recording this like, I think a week and a half before it's going to come out. So it's zookeeper week, but like, I have oh, such yeah, an yeah. appreciation for zookeepers and people who work in zoos and work with animals professionally because it's like thankless and there's not a lot of money in it. Like I know everyone well, says yeah, like, I don't do it for the money, but like you have to live and it's hard to live on those salaries. Well, yeah, like the zookeepers um, and technicians, like all are underpaid um, mm-hmm. and they do so much. And mm-hmm. also like usually most zoos won't take somebody in unless they have a bachelor's degree or some even have like masters and stuff and you get paid like, you know, 12, 15 bucks an hour. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, not a, very livable wage if you want to be an actual kind of adult um but yeah so i huge shout out to all the zookeepers and techs and everybody who so at disney we call it animal care so we we kind of lump Mm -hmm. it all together so um but yeah i i couldn't do my day job without the amazing keepers that we have um and they're they are a a thankless profession i feel like and they're it's hard working too here in florida they're like outside and like the blistering heat and humidity and I'm just like oh I don't know how I could be like shoveling like you know rhino poo out in yeah. 110 degrees and 100% humidity yeah but, I used to do they do I, it I volunteered at um the zoo for one day a week and I would just do a half day and I would literally be so exhausted after my half day mm-hmm. that I'd have to go home and yeah. sleep for like three hours like it was it's insane yeah and it's just so if anyone's listening and you're a zookeeper we appreciate you we love you and we think you deserve more money yeah so just remember that we support Absolutely. you um yeah. so, so you mentioned that you work at disney so we're definitely going to get there because i think that's so interesting yeah. <laughs> but you're with this um was it a sanctuary was it a breeding facility like now it's more of a it's zoo called, type or well it's it's still called a conservation center so like mm-hmm. they're I think they're, they're, they're AZA, but they're not like AZA zoo. I it's, it's kind of hard to describe because it's, they are a zoo, but they're, they're not like a, you know, you walk in and you pay your ticket. Like you have to drive, you know, miles down a dirt road into this like country area and they have like these big giant, like, you know, security, you know, gates you have to go through and stuff like that. And you can't Mm -hmm. come like, like unannounced and things, but um, but yeah, I would just call it a conservation center that's, um, that's privately owned. Okay. So how long were you with that facility? Um, so I was there for six months. Um, okay. so yeah, so they did a six month internship. Um, and then the kind of cool thing with that was, um, kind of how I got into my next position, which was at the university of Florida is, um, the residency program for the, um, zo- zoological medicine Mm-hmm. Uh, starts at UF and they do a two-year program there and then they mm-hmm. do the third year of their residency at White Oak and they spend a year there and then they would do um, this kind of changed over the last couple of years but the fourth year that they would spend at Disney so when I was at White Oak I got to meet the residents that were in the zoo program at UF um, mm-hmm. and that's how I kind of learned that there was a position open when the, the um, vets there was like yeah, there's a position open in, in you know at us like i think you'd be amazing for it like you have to apply and i was like sure so i applied and um she obviously gave me a great recommendation um at that time though i moved back to colorado because i hadn't heard back or anything from from us and so three weeks after moving back to colorado i got the call that i got the job at us so <laughs> i basically packed up all my stuff again and moved oh back gosh. to florida um yeah. and that's where i got my kind of my I started at the kind of academic side of, of zoological medicine. So 
Yeah. So explain what that's like. So I assume that when you're with White Oak, was it just general like animal care, like blood tests, treating like illnesses and such? Yeah. So we did. Um, so depending on the species, it would kind of depend on what we were doing. Um, so a lot of times we just do like general exams and things um, or pre-shipment exams of animals were getting sent out. So like, you know, so say they had, you know, cheetah cubs that were born that were going to be, um, you know, taken to another zoo. So we would obviously do like, you know, their, their neonate vaccines and things like that. Um, and then like, if they were old enough and they were going to be shipped out, we would do pre-shipment exams um, where we would anesthetize them, draw blood, take radiographs. Um, and then cheetahs, we would do uh, endoscopy um, for getting biopsies and things like that. Cause a lot of times they have um, some GI um, kind of, I don't want to say issues, but they just have some GI uh, complications that we always want to keep an eye on mm -hmm. um, and also just monitor throughout their lives. And then, you know, uh, we would do what we call zebra week. So we would go through and anesthetize all the zebras in one week. Um, and we would do like hoof trims and um, teeth floating and vaccines and, you know, ultrasounds if we needed to or anything else that we would need to do. And then if there was sick animals, we'd take care of sick animals. And um, it was kind of a, a really good and like kind of first step into the zoo field and seeing, you know, what they did and how much I enjoyed it and kind of knew that that's that's what I wanted to do. Yeah, that I can just imagine that's like way to get everything done at once, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, like in a six month yeah. internship like that, you're really going to figure out if you like it or not. Yeah. Well, the cool thing too, was I got to live there on property. So like, I got to like, you know, open my, my curtains in the morning and see like, you know, small wild asses in the background or rhinos and, and all sorts of things. And the place is mm -hmm. like incredibly beautiful. It's just like, serene Florida and um, just all the cool, cool animals that they have there is, is awesome. So if anybody has never been or is in Florida and wants something to do, I would highly recommend um, just looking them up. Um, and yeah. Visiting. Where are and they? They, they do some tours. Um, so Yuli is basically on the Florida, Georgia line. So like mm -hmm. if you're coming down um, from Georgia into Florida, it's like the first exit um, when you come into Florida. So it's by Jacksonville, like North of Jacksonville. Okay. Awesome. Well, everyone listening, you should check it out because yeah. I really want to now. Um, yeah. So you mentioned like, any any excuse I can to get there. I'm like, oh, let's go to White Oaks. Let's hang out there. Yeah. See what they're doing. <laughs> that's so. that's definitely the benefit of having a partner who's like into animals too. Because mm -hmm. he's never going to say no yeah. to going to see more cool animals. I know. I know. So you mentioned that they do like they are a breeding facility as well for like endangered mm -hmm. species. Are they a part of the SSP programs with other AZA organizations or were they just kind of working with their yeah. own population? No. So they are, um, they're a hundred percent in the AZA or the, um, have the SSP program. So, and that was kind of one of the kind of cool stories that I got to hear was, um, I guess they were having issues with breeding cheetahs, um, mm -hmm. in certain zoos and stuff, just because they're a little bit more of a secretive animal sometimes, um, for things like that. They like a little bit, you know, uh, curtains and soft music. Um, and so they yeah. were able to bring them to White Oak, which is, you know, like I said, out in the middle of nowhere. Um, mm -hmm. They didn't have a lot of people. They just had their keepers and stuff. And they had uh, tremendous success with breeding them. Um, wow. And so, you know, they would have, and especially with cheetahs, they have, you know, it's a small kind of population that they started with. And they kind of have that, you know, it's a very important to have that genetic diversity with that species, because, you know, if you don't, you can have a lot of like that bottleneck with genetics and things like that, which are no bueno when you're trying to kind of preserve that species. Yeah, I'd almost just call it like a true 
a true zoo that nobody just ever goes to and they just hang out and do their thing and take care of animals if that makes sense yeah no absolutely so when you speak about like focusing on preserving a species and then i guess this kind of goes into the rpi as well are you looking to preserve the species in a captive setting or is there any hope to release or reintroduce some of the animals from like white oak into um, their native habitats so i guess kind of the the thing that i always tell people i'm like when i was at white oak it kind of just gave me this like eye-opening experience of like what kind of can happen with like a breeding facility and how they can help zoos and other programs um with not not necessarily having people come you know through the doors every day um and i just you know when cody and i kind of first got together and we were telling you know our dreams and our hopes and what we wanted in this life um we kind of both wanted to build this you know what i call a white oak for reptiles so building a you know a breeding and conservation facility um, gearing towards species that not a lot of either you know, maybe zoos aren't working with or people don't don't want to work with because you know it's a highly venomous snake or it's a species that maybe you know is brown and the general public may not want to see it but working with these species that need help um, mm-hmm. and kind of our our mission is uh, preserving and protecting animals or reptiles in human care and their natural habitat so ideally yes we would want to be able to release and repopulate and you know, reintroduce animals back into the wild, but sometimes that's not feasible. And if that's not feasible, we still want to be able to keep those species alive and well and be able to breed them for either for zoos or for that species. Or if for some reason we're able to, you know, find an area to be able to reintroduce them to be able to do that um, kind of in the future. So and that's kind of where the, the word preservation came in is, is because, you know, I always say that conservation kind of sounds, it's, you know, it's almost overused and people don't understand kind of like, you know, people Mm -hmm. say, oh yeah, I do it for conservation. I do it for conservation. But you're like, but are you just saying it or are you doing something that actually will preserve that animal, preserve the genetics, preserve, you know, how these animals are cared for, um, for future generations? Or is it just like, you know, I don't know. It's just, to me, it just seems like a, a different kind of maybe spin on it. And maybe it's Mm -hmm. almost interchangeable, but at the same time, I guess I kind of feel like it's, you know, it's kind of a, a different kind of view, I guess, on, on preserving them versus just kind of conserving them. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I, I think that's a, a very unique perspective that I haven't considered, but it, it does make sense. Um, so after you finished up at White Oak, you said you went to the university of Florida and can you tell yeah. me, a, and that was like more of an academic setting. So what was that transition and, and what were you doing there? Um, so at uh, the University of Florida, I was a veterinary technician um, or certified veterinary technician in the uh, Department of Zoological Medicine. So mm-hmm. uh, UF is a veterinary school, and so they have different um, kind of areas of specialty that they um, the students get to go through rotation. So depending on you know which vet school you're at, sometimes they have you know third years and fourth years going through different rotations, or they'll mm-hmm. have you know just fourth years going through it but um so at uf we did third year and fourth year vet students would go through rotations so basically we'd have anywhere from you know i think five to ten students per um per kind of uh rotation come through and um they would help see cases they would you know help with treatment plans they would do stuff and and um people always wonder like oh it's at a teaching hospital does that mean my animals you know getting lesser care or you're letting students do all sorts of 
you know, doing surgery in the back on your like highly prized animal. And that's not how it really kind of worked out. It, it's more that the residents and the faculty were kind of the, the primary on the cases, but the students would get the history, they'd help with treatment plans. You know, the, the residents would kind of ask them questions on like, what do you think? What would you do for this? Or what diagnostics would you like to run? And, and kind of help them figure out, you know, a treatment plan and be able to kind of work through different disease processes and, and things like that. So the caseload that we had at, at um, UF was very high. We had a very, very busy service. Um, and it was very good because I kind of feel like, um, I use this quote often, but a, a smooth seas never made a good sailor. So I feel like ZooMed made me a good technician and also brought out some really good, um, you know, veterinarians out of, out of that kind of program. So I can imagine being that busy and seeing such a variety I'm sure you, you got great hands-on experience there. Yeah. Yeah. So as a kind of, as a technicians, we would be the ones who were doing um, most of the restraining, uh, kind of teaching the students, um, you know, blood draw techniques, um, you know, how to give subcute fluids, how to give injections, how to gavage feed, how to, you know, how to intubate, how to do anesthesia and kind of all that stuff. So, so we were very hands-on with the students. Um, and they got to like, you know, learn, I feel like quite a bit while they were there. But, um, but yeah, it definitely was fun. And we got to see, um, so any of the, uh, we worked with different zoos um, as their primary veterinarians. So some of the zoos that don't have their own vets kind of uh, in-house, we, we were their veterinarians. So, um, so the St. Augustine alligator farm, which, you know, that's how Cody and I met. Mm -hmm. um, we were the, um, the vets for the Central Florida Zoo. Uh, the Orient Society um, that did indigo snake conservation, uh, the Luby Bat Conservancy, which uh, did fruit bat conservation, and then the Santa Fe Teaching um, College, which was a, uh, a zookeeper uh, college program that um, they had an actual little zoo on, on campus for the uh, zookeepers to be able to learn uh, different techniques and things like that while they were getting kind of on kind of the training as a, as a zookeeper. That's so cool. And then oh we also God. got to see, yeah, I know it's, it's incredible. There is, I mean, there's so, so many cool things here in Florida and there's so many great opportunities depending on, you know, whatever you want to do in, in the animal field, it's, there's a lot of, a lot of opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, and then we also got to see any of the um, wildlife cases that were injured or orphaned. Um, they would uh, kind of in the Gainesville area, they would bring those to us. So we would get a lot of uh, raptors. So barred owls, um, you know, all different hawk species, um, vultures, you know, bald eagles, things like that. We would get gopher tortoises, um, you know, occasional snakes here and there. Um, mm -hmm. And then the fun part with Florida, we got to see all people's pet exotics. So God, you in, really were living the in life. Florida. <laughs> I know. Like, so like we'd have people, you know, bring their pet tigers and their pet capuchins and, you know, I never had a pet cobra, but we've, we've heard stories of, of pet cobras. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, so basically anything that you could legally have as a pet in Florida, um, we were the ones who would see it. So we also were one of the only places that would see uh, primates and venomous snakes. Um, we didn't get a ton of venomous snakes in other than kind of the alligator farm and some of the zoos. And then um, uh, for the primates, we would see, you know, quite a bit of interesting cases and stuff like that so so yeah it was a very it was a very I mean cool job I loved it and the people there are amazing um mm -hmm. the residents that came through were also just incredible um I got kind of a you know 
it was nice to also see all the, the kind of vet students coming through and be able to kind of go over like just teaching them and seeing that like you know the passion and and them learning and being able to do things and like kind of you know just seeing them grow as as I like to call like the little you know from little baby vets to full-grown fledged fledged vets that are out in the world so mm-hmm. so yeah oh that's so great so was it when you started okay was it Cody that really got you more into reptiles or did you have a passion for reptiles and then met Cody? Cause my question following up from that is, had you not met Cody having worked with all of these animals that you have worked with, do you think there is another species or like group of animals that would have grabbed you as tightly as reptiles have? Um, so yes, I was definitely into reptiles before I met Cody. Um, not to the extent of Cody, obviously he's, um, I mean, full fledged, just cold blooded reptiles all the way. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, but I guess if I had not met Cody, I think I would still have, so like before I met Cody, I had some tarantulas. Um, I didn't have any snakes or anything, but a a lot of, I just, um, had a small apartment and I had, you know, I had my two cats and that was kind of all that I, all that I had. Mm -hmm. Um, but I guess, I think I would, but I really don't know what species I would have gotten into, but I, I always liked the underdog. I always liked the ones that nobody else really thought were, you know, the cute, the pretty, the like, oh, this is, you know, these, these are the species that everybody likes. I always kind of went to the opposite side of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was kind of what drew me to like with reptiles is I felt like they were very misunderstood and very just kind of getting a bad rap for, um, you know, and not, I guess not, not needing to get a bad rap. And it was just the people didn't understand them. And they just kind of, they needed somebody who could try to like help kind of educate people and kind of make a, a better kind of experience with, with that species. And just like a quick sidebar for anyone who doesn't know who we're talking about when I speak about Cody, um, that is Pia's husband. And you can listen to her Petaculture podcast for an interview with him because he's, there's too much to his story to go into it now. He can tell it himself. <laughs> yeah, he's got a, also a very interesting story. And I think that's why we kind of are, we're drawn to each other is neither one of us are very normal, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. or I mean, maybe, I wasn't going to say it. Are, yeah, I guess it's all, it's all relative. Right. right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, so Cody, uh, is definitely the, we always say like, he's, he's like the, you know, uh, husbandry greeting, all that stuff. And then, and then I'm the veterinary side. And so that's what kind of makes us a really good match is that we're not too much into each other's kind of, I guess, space if that makes sense um Mm -hmm. you know any husbandry questions any kind of that sort of thing I always lean on him because I know he he knows it way better than I do and then all the veterinary stuff he always leans on me um because I hopefully should know it a little bit better than than he does but he actually he's very um he's very well versed in kind of reptile medicine and 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 things like that because when he was at the St. Augustine alligator farm he was the um I guess the, the vet liaison for the reptile department. So any mm-hmm. of the vet visits when we went down there was, um, he was the one who was bringing us the animals, letting us know what was wrong with it, kind of giving us the husbandry information. Um, and he got to kind of experience 
all the different kind of treatment plans and the things we were doing and why we were doing it. And um, he kind of, you know, obviously cut on pretty quick on, on different things. So, so yeah. yeah. Well, he was obviously listening to what you were saying, which is good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but I will forewarn anybody who um, does listen to Cody's podcast, make sure you kind of block off a, a good chunk of time because he, he can't chat that, that guy. So <laughs> I mean, um, that is true. Funny. He does like yeah. to talk. <laughs> well, yeah. When I, I don't know if he likes to talk. He just gets really excited and just starts talking. And then it just, it just turns out to be four hours. Um, yeah. But I was, like people always ask me like, you know, when Cody and I first started dating, me and him would easily have anywhere from like six to seven hour conversations. Um, Cause I lived in Gainesville and he lived in St. Augustine. So we would just talk um, after work and yeah, we would talk until, you know, the wee hours of the morning and it, everybody was like, how can you like talk with him for who obviously didn't know him? Um, they're like, how can you guys talk for like six hours? I'm like, Cody can talk for six hours. I just listened and it was amazing. I just got to like, you know, absorb all the information and his stories and kind of all that, all that stuff. So yeah, he does so talk was, with substance though, which is a good thing. It's not just babbling. Yeah. 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 And he, he always likes to give like the backstory, the backstory and like all the details. Um, and so like, <laughs> usually you won't have any questions at the end mm-hmm. of it, which, yeah. is, which is usually pretty good, but, but yeah. Yeah, that's why RPI can't do a character. TikTok. There's not enough time I know. for Cody to make a TikTok. <laughs> I know. I like. I so we've been trying. To, so okay, full disclosure. I'm terrible at social media, and I do the social media for like you know some of the RPIs, you know, Fishhead, and I've been mm-hmm. trying to do TikTok stuff, but I'm like I can't get Cody to like do a 15 second clip, and even his Instagram stories, he like does like 17 of them. I'm like Cody, I'm like just like three Instagram stories. That's it. Like, you know, you gotta, you gotta kind of like, you know, taper it down, but he, his stories are still good. But, um, but that's why mm-hmm. we also have the Patreon, um, where we kind of do videos and stuff, which he's, he's got a lot of content, but he hasn't had time to, to make any videos. So yeah, so that's another, no, I, another I fun always project like listening that we do. To you guys talk. It's always fun. <laughs> well, I hope so. I hope we also give good information. It's not just us uh, babbling. Yes. No, you guys are like encyclopedias with legs. Um, (laughs) So after UF and uh, working at the alligator farm um, and you got together with Cody, what was your journey from there? Um, So Cody and I met in 2012. So I was, um, I was at UF from 2015 or 2010 to 2015. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for the first couple of years, we kind of, he worked at the alligator farm. I worked at UF and then, um, he got a phone call out of the blue, um, from a place in Arizona that, um, offered him a curator of reptile position, um, at their facility. And they wanted somebody who had, um, an AZA zoo, uh, venomous and crocodilian experience. Cause that was kind of his, uh, what they were, they had a, a big reptile um, facility. They had a lot of venomous snakes. They had, um, I think, over 100 species of venomous snakes. They had mm-hmm. um, over 19 species of crocodilians. So a lot of different species and stuff. And they wanted somebody who was able to kind of hit the ground running with everything. And then also um, they were a sanctuary. So they didn't also have a ton of, you know, a, a team of keepers. So they needed somebody who was able to to kind of be a jack of all trades, be able to do everything kind of there yeah. taking care of, you know, venomous snakes and being able to do crocodilians and being able to, you know, 
help train volunteers and interns and stuff there. I don't know if they had quote unquote interns, but they're volunteers and things like mm-hmm. that. So, um, so, so yeah, we, we packed up and moved to uh, Arizona um, and we were, we were there only a year. Um, the facility, it just didn't work out uh, kind of how we all had, had hoped. So um, mm-hmm. after uh, he, Cody resigned after nine months, um, we moved back to Florida with neither one of us having a job, which was kind of scary. But at the same time, you know, we, we were like cats. We always kind of land on our feet. We always had a plan that we could, you know, something could happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I applied for the job at Disney and um, that's kind of where I got that job. And then Cody, obviously the alligator farm was um, said that he, they would take him back at any time, but there wasn't a position open. And Cody had the opportunity to kind of work from home with the reptiles. And that's kind of where, that um, side of things kind of flourishes. He was able to, you know, work from home and take care of reptiles and kind of, kind of build that side of, of kind of what we were, what we were planning on doing. So when you got together with Cody and you're like, at this point, what did your collection look like? And what was your involvement with the collection? Were you actively like participating in in acquiring animals and like really getting into the hobby or was it still really Cody's thing? But yeah, so when I met Cody, um, I know we've told the story a million times, but um, I basically kind of asked him out and I asked him out by, by asking for um, venomous handling experience. And once we kind of got together, Cody already had a collection of reptiles, um, a small one at that time. He, as I, you know, it was, it seemed large when I was there, but I, you know, didn't envision what, or I shouldn't say didn't envision, but um kind of didn't know where, where we were going to kind of head with all of this. Mm-hmm. So he had um, green tree pythons. Um, and I think, I can't remember if he had any carpets at that time. I don't think he had any carpets. I think it was just, um, just green trees and kind of, I guess, funny half story is um, his ex-girlfriend at the time, she had her venomous snakes at um, his house. So she, so there was, some venomous snakes when I was there, but it wasn't his. Um, and she's the one who took care of all of them and, and did her thing, but they, they left pretty quickly. Um, yeah, but that's yeah, awkward. I definitely, <laughs> I, it was a little awkward. Um, I mean, I never, I never got to meet her actually until a couple of probably four weeks ago. Um, I finally got to meet her and she's super nice and, um, going to vet school and stuff like that. So, so mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting how, how life happens, but, um, but yeah, so I definitely help take care of the the green trees and help feed and clean and do all that stuff and and I was definitely a part of it and the first kind of um reptiles that Cody and I bought together were um a pair of rough scale pythons back in 20 uh 2012 and that was kind mm-hmm. of our first kind of breeding project slash you know pair of snakes that we bought as a couple which was which was very cool at the time because um, not a lot of people had them back then. And yeah, um, not a lot of people have them now. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's true. I mean, they're more common now than they were back then, but, um, but yeah, it was, it was quite an, an experience because we bought them at the Arlington um, show and mm-hmm. I got to meet uh, kind of my idol, which is, uh, is um, Tracy Barker. And That's she, what I was just going to say. Was it Tracy? <laughs> yeah it was Tracy Parker. And I was like, like, I mean, cause I had like heard about her and kind of like, you know, Cody had talked about like, you know, David Tracy Barker and we'd listen to podcasts and we would like hear all this stuff. And, and, um, she had never seen one in person and we bought them there at the show. 
which that's the only time I think we've ever bought a snake at a show and it was rough scale pythons, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, she, she took pictures of them and I don't know who took the picture of me, but like I have a picture of me holding the deli cup and her taking a picture of it. And it just like is the coolest thing. And she was so down to earth and so nice. And like, you would have never known who she was had you not known who she was, if that makes sense. I'm like, I only met her that one time. And like, I think the only reason she would remember me is because she took pictures of rough scale pythons. Had I had like something else, I'm sure like, I don't know if she would remember me, but, but yeah. Very, very, very Um, cool. So were rough scales like the first snake that like you kind of like, like what was your first snake you fell in love with? Um, I feel like, so there's, I, I kind of, I have the same question of like, what's your favorite animal? Um, I don't think I have a snake that I really just like always fell in love with. I think I mm-hmm. like different species and different animals for different reasons. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, Very diplomatic so, answer. Yeah, <laughs> but it's true. Cause I, I don't know. I, I always say at least for, you know, my day job, they're like, Oh, what's your favorite animal? I'm like, it's whatever I worked on that day. So like, you know, it's, it's hard to have a favorite when you work with so many incredible animals, I guess. But I right. will say, knowing now working with a lot of different species i know species that i you know if i had to take care of the collection alone there's species that i wouldn't work with um that we have like there's a lot of cobras and stuff i'm like i don't need a cobra like they you know don't always hook well and they're you know a little spastic and things like that but like the arboreal vipers i hands down would have an entire house full Mm -hmm. um but but yeah just kind of i don't know there's, there's so many cool things about different species that I just always love. Like the rough scales, like they're just, they're very inquisitive. Like they have that color change. They like, you know, they they have those rough scales that, that are just peeled and awesome. And like, when you hold them, like you can just feel it going through your hands and yeah, they're just, they were super cool. And it was just, you know, we kind of always had that idea of, of kind of breeding the rare, not because they're rare, but because it's, you know, needed somebody to, to work with them and, you know, somebody who would be able to hopefully do good with them and, you know, do right by them and be able to help them, you know, either reach produce more or to be able to learn something more about how their husbandry is or veterinary mm-hmm. care or disease or something like that was, was kind of the whole, the kind of whole goal. So with this like large collection at home and then you working with animals in the day-to-day, I was having a conversation with Kendra Westy from Puget Sound Pythons um, briefly yesterday about like burnout from animals when it's both your hobby and your career. Do you ever notice that where it's like hard to work with your animals at home because of how much time you dedicate to the animals at work or to fish head labs and such? Um, I will say yes it's definitely hard, but I wouldn't say it's always hard. I feel like it's sometimes hard, if that makes sense. Where, you know, it will be, you'll have a couple of weeks where it's like no big deal. I mean, you know, taking care of animals and, you know, working with animals and, you know, answering night of questions and doing all that. And then there's some days where just like, if I have to pick up poop one more time, I'm going to like, you know, I don't know, shoot myself or whatever. Not really, but you know what I mean? Like it's, it's kind of like, you're just, completely done with it and that's kind of when you have to I guess think about what why you like what you what you're doing and like the good parts about it and kind of try to 
kind of, I guess, recenter yourself. Um, but I will say uh, it depends also on, I guess, work-life balance. I hate to use that work, but it, word, but it's like, um, I feel very blessed at Disney because um, I always joke that it's my vacation job, like, you know, very well staffed, like good medicine. Like I don't necessarily feel quote unquote tired after mm -hmm. I work where mm -hmm. I'm, you know, we're kind of, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a little different, but I will say it's, you know, if you're, if you have a high paced, high stress, you know, kind of work environment at work, and then you come home and you have all these animals to take care of, and it's, you know, venomous or something that takes some concentration, um, then it, it definitely can, can burn you out. And also, you know, possibly, you know, hurt you or maim you or something else. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I, I know that, I know a lot of people who work in zoos um, and they don't have any animals at home, or if they do, they have like a dog or a cat. Mm -hmm. um which I I feel like is is probably a good thing but at the same time like I feel like I don't know if if you have the passion for it like I feel like it's going to spill over into into your kind of home life as well so right yeah and I think that's a a good answer and I think I mean I keep saying I think you're obviously saying it from your experience but listening to you well, speak it's it's a relief for me to hear someone who's been working with animals for a long time and still maintains that passion and it's also nice i think yeah. for everyday keepers to be reassured that it's okay to feel burnout sometimes or it's okay to feel upset like or or overwhelmed yeah. because it seems like a lot of times especially on social media people like portray it as like everything is great in the collection all the time like i love what i'm doing all the time when you know, sometimes you wake up and you look at your animal wall and you're like, holy shit. Like, I don't want to deal with that, you know? Yeah. Well, and, and kind of adding on to that is, um, you know, working with live animals and especially if you're not in like the veterinary field, like I feel like having a sick animal or having an issue with an animal is almost a taboo where you're like, oh, I'm not doing, I'm not doing the right thing or I'm not taking care of it. My animals, because, you know, they got sick or something like that. It's like, no, like if you're dealing with live animals, if you're taking care of things, there's going to be an animal's going to get sick. An animal might get injured. An animal might die, but it's just like how you take care of it and how you kind of learn from it that I think is super important. And, you know, Cody and I always joke that like, if somebody who has, you know, more than one snake says, oh yeah, I've never had a mite. I've never had a, you know, I've never had a sick animal. I've never had this. I've never had that. Like with a fairly sizable collection, I'm like, you're either lying or you don't have any clue about your animals because yeah. you're going to get you're going to get an animal that either gets sick either dies or has an issue like you know it's it's bound to happen and the more animals you have and the longer you do it the the more times it happens and that's kind of the I guess fortunate or unfortunate part um mm -hmm. going back to the smooth phase these never made a good sailor is that you know if you learn from those things then you'll become a better keeper because of it yeah. And I, and I think I, I want to touch on that too. And just like say to you, Pia, how much I commend you for how you help other people who are going through those situations. Um, I'm specifically thinking to myself when I had the green tree that passed away earlier this year, like you were on the phone with me for like an hour and a half one night, like trying to walk me through problems that could be and like how much I appreciate that. And I know of a lot of other people you've taken the time out of your day to like call them and walk them through nido testing or walk them through problem solving animals. And that's not something you have to do. 
but it is so appreciated and admired by the people around you. So I just want to make sure that's like on the record, how much we appreciate that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like I would just, I would hope somebody would do that for me. And, um, you know, and that's the thing is, you know, if my experience or if my, you know, knowledge of something can help somebody else, then, then I'm all for it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so yeah, so if anybody has a question or, you know, wants to ask me anything, I'm usually pretty easy to, to get a, well, I should say I'm easy to get a hold of, but I can't always answer it right away, depending on <laughs> the time of day and what I'm doing. But yeah, you're definitely yeah, no, a busy I, lady. Yeah. I know there's, there's a, I wish there was a few more hours in the day, but, but that's I know. okay. I try to get I, done what I, what I can, but. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. I appreciate your time, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, we've danced around it a little bit, but you mentioned earlier your the Nido situation you and Cody had with your collection. So mm-hmm. this podcast, I think, might have a little bit of a different audience than some of the other ones you've talked on or Cody has talked on. So can we talk yeah. through that situation and then like let's talk about Nidovirus and what that is in and what you're doing for it? Yeah. Um, so like I said, Cody um had green trees uh, prior to me dating him. Um, and that was kind of one of the species that we, we worked with. Um, and back in 2015, uh, we purchased a large collection of green tree pythons. Um, and about, I'm going to kind of give you the, the short version. Um, mm-hmm. If anybody wants the kind of long detailed versions, we um, did do a few podcasts that I can definitely, if somebody's like, hey, I want a ton more information. I'm like, I have podcasts galore to, to send yeah. to you. But, um, but yeah, kind of the the abbreviated version is, so we bought a, a large collection of green tree pythons. We had about, um, probably about 30 animals, um, including, you know, caging and, and everything like that. And about three weeks into their quarantine, uh, we had one snake die and send it out for necropsy. And before we got necropsy on uh, results on the first one, another one died. Um, and then we had basically about um, a snake die every three days or so for the first couple kind of, of weeks or so. And um, from doing the necropsies, we found out that it was a, um, a viral infection. And then um, from my work with uh, the University of Florida, I worked with um, Dr. Elliot Jacobson, who is the godfather of uh, reptile virology. Also at UF is Dr. Jim Willihan, who's, who's now the current, I guess, I wouldn't call him a godfather. <laughs> He's not old enough now, but, um, but he basically is kind of the reptile viral kind of guru um but because i got to work with both both of them i had kind of a a little insight of nidovirus at that point in time this was back in probably 20 i don't know probably 2011 2012 something like that um Mm -hmm. that they didn't really know what other than it was called nidovirus and it caused a um a pneumonia and a lot of animals were dying from it they didn't really know much of it so um when we kind of had this, um, had the necropsy, I had a suspicion that it was nidovirus because of kind of the clinical history that we have from them or from the animals and uh, sent out for IBD and nidovirus testing and IBD was negative and um, and nidovirus was positive. And at that point in time, we kind of knew that we were dealing with a, a nidovirus outbreak. We ended up reaching out to a research lab at Colorado State University that they were working pr- previously with nidovirus. So I reached out mm-hmm. to him because uh, I had sent him samples before for UF. And I was like, hey, are you still 
um, working on nidovirus research because I'm pretty sure we are dealing with an outbreak in our collection. And they mm-hmm. said, yes, we are. Please send us, you know, samples and things like that. And um, back back then, uh, swabbing the Kalina was not a thing that you would do for nidovirus um, PCR. You would do either a lung wash or you would do a lung biopsy. So those are oh, kind wow. of two options. So, so how did you do that with a live so, animal? Um, very carefully. So, um, yeah. so you have to do, I say that jokingly. Um, <laughs> so to do, I guess, most typical people should not do lung washes because uh, it has to be done sterilely. It has to be done very carefully and it has to be done in a certain way. Um, but because of Cody and I's experience, my work at UF, kind of, we were able to um, do some of the stuff at home, which um, I wouldn't say is typical in any kind of sense of the, um, you know, how people should be doing it, but it was basically kind of the how we had to do it. But um, but I did actually hear a talk by another awesome virologist who's a good friend of mine, um, Rachel Marshang, who's up in Germany, and she had just presented a paper at a conference about using Coena swabs for nidovirus testing. Mm-hmm. Um, so we kind of talked to the researchers and we were like, hey, because we have so many snakes that we're testing, can we, you know, try swabbing and seeing if that will work? And if we don't get, you know, good results, then we'll go to, you know, lung washing and we'll go to biopsies and we'll kind of go, go down that, um, that path. And so we ended up um, doing the swabs instead of doing the lung washes um, on the remaining or the animals that we had there. And um, about, I think it was 75% of the animals or maybe 80% of the animals that we had were uh, positive for nidovirus. Wow. So is this, so, is this something that, sorry to interrupt. No, no, that was to please this you. something you were concerned about before you got into the situation or anyone was talking about nidovirus or was it just kind of um, something you were lucky to know about? A little bit of both. Um, so I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a pessimist in any stretch of the imagination, but I'm more of a, like, I'm a realist where it comes to, as a technician, I kind of have to think of every possible scenario or mm-hmm. any possible thing that could happen um, mm-hmm. and try to be able to prepare for it, or at least be kind of have it on my radar. Mm-hmm. Um, and so infectious disease was always kind of on the radar um, and I guess the good thing that we did uh, when we purchased the collection is uh, we had we requested that anything that died got, that would get a necropsy, but that didn't happen. So it's like, oh, just keep them frozen, and we'll just we'll take the frozen animals um, when we you know get the collection or whatever. So we had frozen animals, which was helpful. And the only reason I did that was in case something were to come back on an infectious disease or something like that, then we at least had other animals that had already died to see if it was a kind of a whole herd health collection type thing versus mm-hmm. just a one-off. Was this your first time purchasing an entire collection? Yes. First and last. <laughs> yeah. That's what I was going to um, ask next. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I guess I feel like the romanticized version, like, oh yeah, it would be great to buy somebody's entire collection. You'd have adults, you have this, but like in reality, um, I feel like in that, I guess it's kind of the experiences I've heard from people is anytime you buy kind of a collection of animals, things like that, there's usually bad 
not bad things, but there's usually a reason for it. And there's usually not a, you know, it's not all sunshine and roses and, you know, everything Mm -hmm. works out perfectly. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I would say, you know, if you, if you do that, I would be very careful and very cautious and, and kind of, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but at the same time, if, you know, each person can make their own decisions. So it's, it's kind of to each his own, but, but yeah, I know Cody and I would, would never purchase an entire collection ever again. Um, mm-hmm. And right now I don't think we have the need or the want to as well. Yeah. I, I mean, I can see, I can see that's a very tempting thing to do, but you have yeah. one bad situation and it's, it's very difficult. So were those animals yeah. quarantined at the time? Were you able to keep your main um, collection safe? Uh, we we were not, um, but I will say, mm-hmm. or I should say, we did quarantine to the best of our ability. Right. Um, but I will say, there was one other thing I was going to say now, like completely slipped my mind. I'll remember it again. But, um, oh, what I was going to say was we didn't go in planning to buy an entire collection. Okay. Um, these were, these were high-end green tree pythons. And um, we wanted, I think we were planning on getting two animals. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we talked to them and we talked about like, you know, the two animals that we we're planning on getting. And then like, um, they approached us and was like, Hey, you know, we want more time for family, things like that. Like we want to sell the entire collection, you know, we'll make a good deal and make it happen, blah, blah, blah. So, so we didn't go in like, Hey, we're going to buy an entire collection. We're going to, we're going to do this and, and kind of like cut corners and be able to like start start a whole group it was more of a we plan on getting a couple animals but this kind of fell into our lap and and kind of (laughs) you know that that way around it versus the whole the whole thing but um now you gotta remind me of the other question I'll do that sometimes I'll like kind of be a little like pinball-y oh no you're fine because I get really into what you're saying and write down other questions and then forget (laughs) what the original question was yeah that's why I literally Um, I have a notebook in front of me that has doodles because they, when you're when you're talking I have to do something with my hands otherwise I'm going to bite my nails and then it's got random okay. questions in no particular order <laughs> so my um, next question was actually going to be after that though was you obviously had some experience and some background understanding nidovirus mm-hmm. but did you ever foresee yourself going into a path of like studying or working with uh, reptile virology or was it just because of the situation um, so I always liked research. Um, that was one thing I got to do at UF that I really enjoyed was, um, be part of research projects and things. Um, so I kind of enjoyed that part of, but had you been like, yeah, you're going to be, you know, doing a whole bunch of like, you know, snake virus research. I'm like, okay, I'm sure it sounds interesting, but it wasn't <laughs> something that like had my like passion, but it was more of a, you know, and Cody, I, we always say that, it was probably, we were probably the best people to get this collection because one, we were able to figure out what was wrong. We were able to make it, you know, more known to the general kind of reptile community and also be able to provide something that, you know, to be able to help people out. So had Mm -hmm. it, you know, might've gone to somebody else, they might've all been in the freezer and then we still would be at the same place we were, you know, 10, 15 years ago with. Yeah. Or they would have been sold to someone else and yeah 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 exactly um yeah so that was that was kind of the good that came out of it was you know that we have been able to see this through and have have been able to help other people um you know 
either go through it or try, avoid it or, or mm-hmm. things like that. So, so what was, when did you start to work with Dr. Susan and like, what was the inception of fish head diagnostics? And can you talk a little bit about um, that for people who don't know? Yeah. Um, so I met Susan when she was a baby vet at UF. Um, I would say that like she's, she's older than me, so I, I could say it that way, but not by much in about like a year. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so I met Susan through uh, UF. She was a vet student. Um, and I always forget if she was a graduate, if she graduated 2012 or 2011. Um, mm-hmm. She can correct me. But, um, but anyway, she graduated um, UF as a veterinarian. Um, so I knew her there and we were friends. Um, friends there and then she went off to uh, the University of Georgia and did her um, pathology residency there and then when she got done with her pathology residency <laughs> and became a, a boarded pathologist uh, she started her own business which is Fish Head Labs and she's uh, based out of Stewart Florida which is kind of where her um, kind of where her parents and kind of her hometown is so, mm-hmm. um, so that's kind of how yeah, we sorry I keep saying fish head diagnostics sorry well yeah so it's no it's okay because so Fishhead Labs is Susan's pathology side, and she does um, biopsies and things like that. And then Fishhead Labs is kind of an offshoot um, for the diagnostic side of things. So okay. um, because Susan is a good friend of mine and also a amazing boarded pathologist and does primarily exotics, um, when we had our outbreak, um, we started sending stuff uh, to her too. So she was doing a lot of our necropsies, and she was working with um, CSU as well with um, with kind of the whole nidovirus research. So she kind of got, um, I guess, fortunately or unfortunately pulled in by me um, because we were friends and um, and she was able to help with kind of the necropsy side of things and, and, and that sort of thing. So, mm-hmm. and when that kind of, you know, when we were kind of going through this whole outbreak and there wasn't a lot of testing out there, um, especially not anything that was kind of commercially available for, you know, your general snake keeper who wants to do a test like in quarantine and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. We kind of went down this road of like, I was like, I want to be able to create something that a reptile keeper can purchase and they can test their animal and not have to necessarily bring it into a veterinarian, which I'm a hundred percent animals need to go to the vet um, for wellness, for all sorts of things. But sometimes just a quarantine entrance and quarantine exit exam, you may not need, necessarily need a veterinarian for that. Um, and that's kind of where the fish head, um, you know, diagnostics kind of was born out of was being able to create a affordable, accurate, easy to do test. And kind of with my technician kind of background, being able to like, you know, package everything together and be able to get everything into a like easy to digest kind of form of like how to swab and how to do this and how to do that. Um, and Susan's obviously, you know, as a veterinarian, she can, she's basically the, the veterinarian providing the test for the, the client. Um, and then she has that patient relationship with the client from, from the information and everything that she has there. So it's kind of like going to your vet, getting a swab and sending it to like UF, but mm-hmm. it's kind of basically done at your home and we're kind of doing it, um, doing it more telemedicine type versus actual in-person um stuff so yeah and and dr susan she's incredible i i oh my gosh unfortunately had to work with her when my pet died but yeah she was great i mean i would wreck it was i will put it out there for anyone interested it 
the necropsy that I got on my green tree was expensive, but so worth it. Like I felt like yeah. for my mental health, understanding what happened to my animal, that was so worth it to have it done. Yeah. What? And she does such an incredible job of like, she has all the information like completely written out. She's got pictures. She's got like, I mean, yes, there's a lot of like big doctory words, but a lot of times mm-hmm. like she also, you know, kind of lets you know what's going on and, and also answers questions. And yeah, I, I kind of, I, I know I say jokingly a lot, but it's um, kind of, there's some truth that like, I personally think every single person who, who has reptiles, if you don't have a veterinarian, at least have a pathologist that you send things out to, because, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes just having that, and especially if you have a, you know, a somewhat of a collection and you're worried about animals infecting other animals is mm-hmm. being able to say it's infectious or it's not infectious is a huge relief because, mm-hmm. you know, we have 200 plus animals and if a snake dies and it's infectious, that means it's something we have to, you know, tighten down our biosecurity. We need to do this and you do that. Or if it's like, it has cancer, then we're like, okay, that was something that we couldn't necessarily, you know, know about. That's something that, you know, we could have maybe fixed, could have not maybe fixed. Um, So we've had, it's definitely been very, very helpful for our, obviously, you know, kind of mental health part of it to be able to know Mm -hmm. what's going on with the animals, but also as a, you know, if you think of it as you're taking care of a whole group of animals, like you have to take care of the animals individually and the animals as an entire group as well. So mm-hmm. I think it's yeah. super important. It is. And, and, you know, like you said, mental health wise, and like, you know, when I talked to Dr. Susan after my animal died and when I talked to you too, you know, being like able to give you a conch, be like, Hey, like, did I clean this correctly? Or what would you suggest for my other animals? And it's important to have people in your corner and like working with a oh, yeah. vet you trust and a pathologist you trust is like so important. Yeah. So find, find and, your local you reptile ship, vet. <laughs> yeah. ARAV. So it's www.arav.org and there's mm-hmm. a find a vet. So when people are like, oh, there's not a reptile vet in my area. I'm like, let me Google it. Cause I will tell you there's a vet within 10 miles of you or, you know, 45 miles of you or whatever. Yeah. There you are gotta be willing to drive for it. Gotta be willing yeah. to drive and, for and it. And even if you, and even if you don't like, say you have a good dog cat vet, they can, they can consult with the people at ARAV or a, like a board specialized, you know, reptile and amphibian veterinarian and be like, Hey, I don't usually see, you know, ball pythons. Um, this is what I'm, cause like the veterinarians and it drives me, okay, I'm going to get on my soapbox for just like two Please, seconds. Get on your soapbox. It drives me crazy when people are like, like, yeah, this is my soapbox. This is the moment. Um, when people are like, Oh, I know way more than a vet. I'm like, so you might know a little bit more about the specific species or certain things about, um, you know, your animal than, a, than the veterinarian you're taking the animal to. But the veterinarian has years of foundation of like of medicine and how to do like, you know, all these diagnoses and, and being able to problem solve and being able to go through these kind of different things, even though they, you might know something more than them for a certain thing they know more than you on a whole bunch of other things. So, mm-hmm. so, so yeah, so that's just my, my little soapbox, but yeah, but yeah I even mean, if it's you important. have a great vet, just, it is. Sorry. That was just, ugh. please don't apologize. Bit. Don't, don't yeah. apologize at all. You don't need to. It's, yeah. it's, it is important. And yeah. I think it like, I've said it once and I'll say it again. Like you have to put your pride aside to take care of your mm-hmm. animals because like Absolutely. you were a perfect example that even really great keepers get sick animals and 
you have to be yeah. prepared for it and be willing to spend the money on it. Like, because it's going to happen well, to everyone. I mean, it, it even happens to Disney where everything is magical. Like animals yeah. get sick, animals break a leg, animals, you know, get cancer and die. Animal, like animals can get like diseases. It, it literally happens to anything that is living. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so it's not like, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, I would say it's, it's not necessarily that you did something wrong, um, but you do need to take care of it and you need to, to you know, find either a veterinarian um, to take them to, or, you know, call, call a veterinarian who you, you have in your, in your corner or call a friend who can help you. But, but I will say another little, I'm going to do a couple of soapboxes just before I warn you. Um, somebody cannot give you veterinary med- or veterinary medicine advice without being an actual veterinarian. So you can't call me. Like, so, so say Dominique, you're like, my green shoe python is sick. And I'm like, oh, so you want to give it Batril at, you know, five mix per kg, blah, 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 blah. That mm-hmm. is me. That is me working without a license. And that's illegal. Um, and you can like get in you know big trouble for it. And so mm-hmm. that's the other thing that is a very fine line that people need to watch is, you know, if your friend tells you what, like what drug to give or what, you know, what other medical advice type thing, then that is, that is illegal and you kind of have to watch it. And that's the thing is if they're not a veterinarian, they can't be doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say if it's your own personal animals, because they're considered property, um, I can go to the feed store, buy whatever drug I want and give it to all my animals because they're property. And it doesn't count that way, if that makes sense. That's so interesting. So, hmm. Yeah. I mean, I guess yeah. that's not something well, that me as like a lay person would worry about. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's like one thing. So like when I talk to people, I'm very careful about what I say because I'm a technician. And so mm-hmm. I can't give, I can't diagnose, I can't treat and I can't prescribe. Um, and I can't do surgery that are, you know, those are like the, the four basic things that a technician can't do. Um, but I can, you know, work with a veterinarian on certain things. So like, so say a veterinarian comes and asks me, hey, I have a bearded dragon that I've never, you know, I don't work with bearded dragons what are some some things I can help them as a veterinarian I can help them like okay these are some drug doses these are things but the veterinarian has to be the one who makes that decision who diagnoses Mm -hmm. who treats who does all that so Mm -hmm. um so yeah so that's my other my other little soapbox well I appreciate the soapboxes because it's good to remember you know my first podcast by myself too so oh that makes me so excited I'm loving listening to you I'm being quieter than normal because I'm listening (laughs) oh I'm probably being more talkative than normal. Usually like it's me and Cody and I just let him run with it. Cause I'm like, I'll just sit in the back. I'll just yeah. pop in and say a couple, couple things here and there. But, but <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm usually the quieter one, but I know that, you know, it's when you're being interviewed, it's helpful to be somewhat, I guess, talkative. Yeah. It's, it can be hard to be on. I mean, okay. I obviously have a podcast. Um, this is the podcast that I have, but, um, it, I remember Are you being, sure this okay. I don't know. Honestly, I have no idea what's going on. I remember being so nervous before I did my first podcast that I was like shaking and, and I felt like I sounded like a complete idiot and ended up being, it was the podcast I did with Joe Phelan, um, which is on this channel. It's oh, just like yeah. far back. And it's like so funny because I sounded, I felt so nervous. And then I got like so many compliments afterwards. And so many people are so supportive of me that it's like, it's hilarious to think of how you perceive yourself versus how other people perceive you. Because oh. right now I'm listening to you and I'm like, holy shit, she's such a badass. Like she knows everything she's talking about. Well, and, and like, I'd say 
the same thing. I'm like, oh crap, I, did I say that right? I'm like, oh, am I, I'm like literally second guessing everything that I'm saying. So um, I was kind of a, I don't know, like I have, I have anxiety, like social anxiety. I'm also an introvert. Mm-hmm. So like doing these kind of things is like huge for me. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily like, and I'm, I'm kind of being a little bit more open just because it's you and I kind of appreciate the things that you're doing. And I feel like you have to be open and honest with people, but um, so I'm kind of sharing a little more than I probably have ever shared before. But, um, but I will say that especially women, especially, you know, anybody who feels, I don't know. And it's not just women, just people who feel insecure about things. It's, it's always usually worse. You, you're worse on yourself than anybody else will think of you. Like thousand percent. how like, you're like, Oh my gosh, you're such a badass. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm like, I'm just like a regular person. Like, you know, I probably screwed up something today. I probably like, you know, said something wrong or something like that. So like, I feel like you're always worse on yourself than you are than other people kind of, I guess, perceive you. So, so there's my, my little overshare that, you know, and I guess the other thing that I always say is I always make myself do these things. Cause if I don't, I know that I never would. Mm-hmm. So like, I don't necessarily, you know, like, or want to be on a podcast, but at the same time, I know that if I don't do it and I, I don't make myself do it, that I'm going to kind of like let my inner kind of, you know, scared person win. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. So it's just kind of like, I, like I would do, you know, presentations and I would do this and I would do that. And people are like, you're not an introvert. You don't have anxiety. You don't, you don't look like you do. And like, well, what's going on on inside of me is not the same as going on the outside of me. So you kind mm-hmm. of like, I know you get that kind of imposter syndrome where like the, you know, the people don't really, I don't get you if that makes sense, but yeah, you're totally speaking my language. I I a thousand percent understand what you mean. And I think it's, it's easy for um, people like you. And then I'll like say people like me as well who, okay. And I don't mean to say this as like a, like a bragging on or sounding like all full of myself, but people who other people generally think of as like, like outgoing people. It's like, yeah, I can be outgoing, but I'm in the same boat where it's like, it's hard. And afterwards I have to recover, <laughs> you know, and, oh and the anxiety is the anxiety is really hard. And, and, and putting yourself out on a platform like this is very difficult. And I totally get that because I still struggle with it all the time. Um, so I really appreciate you doing it tonight and like talking with me. And then, um, that's also one thing people have asked me before, and it's just like a good time to bring it up is people have asked me if I'm ever going to do this podcast live and I'm not going to, because I think we can have more genuine, authentic conversations when there's not a chat going on or other people listening and trying to have their input. So I'm sorry if people want a live podcast, we're going to keep this just like this for now. You don't have to do what everybody else wants you to do or what, what everybody else is doing too. Like, I think kind of do do what feels right to you and don't let anybody else tell you tell you mm-hmm. different but so you met okay this is going back a little bit but yeah, I want to talk about something that you you <laughs> I want to talk about something you mentioned earlier today so um for people who haven't listened yet I recommend you go back and listen to episode 18 where I interviewed Gina Zwicky she is a conservation oh, biologist who studied um malaria in the Saban Anole um, and Pia actually texted me as she was listening to that podcast. So thanks for listening, um, that you did blood transfusions for flamingo chicks who have malaria. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, kind of, I guess going back So my, my day job is, um, I'm a veterinary technician at Disney's animal kingdom. 
mm-hmm. um, which is also kind of my vacation job. But um, literally, talk but yeah, about a dream like, job. I'm sorry, you say that I'm like, Holy shit. <laughs> like that's what every well, kid wanted like, to be. I know. It's like it's the craziest thing because so I'm I'm not a Disney person. So like I wasn't like oh my god, like Disney is where to be. But at the same time, like when I got there, I'm just like oh my god, Disney is the place to be because like right the cool like the amount of cool I, I don't want to say cool, but like the the medicine, the animal care, that like the time that they put into just one procedure is just incredible. Um, to the point where like it's it's basically like money is no object. Like whatever the animal needs is whatever the animal needs. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have um, we're obviously in Florida. These animals are outside in kind of Florida weather and and mosquitoes and all sorts of things. And so we um, we had a uh, we've had a couple of uh, flamingo chicks who um, who were kind of down and weak. And so we did exams and blood work and stuff like that. And um, we were able to see that. Uh, they have uh, malaria, so the plasmodium. Um, and so with that, uh, it can uh, obviously cause anemia, which is a decrease in the red blood cells and um, kind of helps or makes them weak and things like that. And the only thing to be able to kind of fix an anemia without your body's own kind of making more blood, uh, red blood cells is getting a blood transfusion. Mm-hmm. Um, so without like skipping a beat, the keepers went out and grabbed this chick's dad. So, so, you know, daddy flamingo came up and donated blood to be able to give his chick, um, a blood transfusion, um, which so, was, I mean, really quick. Oh, go ahead. How do you know which flamingo is the dad? Is there only one male or? Well, no. So like, like I said, like a keeper appreciation, um, every, like the keepers that we have, they know, like, how often that baby has eaten that day. They know who's the dad. They know who's the mom. They know like, they know everything about these animals and like mm-hmm. us as like the veterinary staff, like we lean on them. Um, Cause people are always like, well, how do you know if they're sick? And like the keepers will tell us that, you know, he, they lost two grams and this is different. This is not normal. Or they usually eat this, but they don't like this. And today they're not eating either one of these. And like, they'll tell us every single min- minute little detail about these animals. And we're mm-hmm. able to do a lot of things prior to it becoming a really big issue or a really big problem. Um, Mm -hmm. So they were noticing the chick was a little weak. And so that's why we brought it up and we did um, an exam and things. And then, um, like I said, like they know who dad is. And so they brought dad up and we were able to get um, a whole blood from him and be able to do a blood transfusion to the chick. And then the wow. kind of got to be in our ICU and, and fully taken care of and, and everything like that. So it was funny because um, you also on that, I'll mention it, but um, you mentioned you, you guys were talking about how freaky and like scared of um, mandrills and like primates and stuff that you guys are. Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> I was like, and so like literally you were talking about mandrills and flamingos and malaria. And I was just like, oh my God, like this was totally my day to day is like, you know, we anesthetized a mandrill and we, you know, did blood transfusion on a flamingo and we like, yeah, so it's it's quite an interesting and amazing um, career and job that I have, and and just the the people and the medicine and and, and kind of you know it's, it kind of sounds corny, but like just to be able to share this with other people that like you know you can do a blood transfusion on a flamingo or you can do you know this surgery on this animal. Like some people are always like you know, you can anesthetize a fish. I'm like, yeah, we anesthetize fish. We do CTs on fish. We do surgery on fish. Like like there's there's kind of a endless possibility of 
treatment and care that you can do for these animals. And I guess people don't always, I guess, and I always say like, whatever you can do on a human, you can do on an animal. You just have to be a little bit more creative and a little bit more patient. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just depends kind of on, on what you're doing, but, but yeah. That's insane. That's, that's so cool. So, okay. Yeah. So this flamingo got malaria. Do you assume it was from like a mosquito? Yeah. Yeah. It's a mosquito born. So or not born, but born yeah. with, you know, you know you. what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is this, is this something you see? Is this something you see often because of where you are um, and your animals being outside or was this a unique case? So this was more of a unique case. Um, so most of the time, um, you know, these animals might like the, the avian kind of um, malaria, we might see it here and there, but a very, very low numbers. And most of the time, you know, your body can kind of, or their bodies can kind of, um, kind of work around it and that sort of thing. It's not as big of a deal, but, but depending on if there's any other, you know, any other issues or for some reason, it might've just been worse than this animal that, um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of a very unique case. It's not something that we would see like, oh yeah, it's malaria season now that we're going to see a bunch of it. So it was just kind of a, a, a more unusual case that, that actually had to come up to the hospital. So, you know, it's, I guess it's a little bit different than it might've just been that it's been, you know, more wet this year or, or something else that kind of, kind of has happened. Um, but yeah, it's not something that we usually typically see often. So, and that kind of brings me to another question of like uncertainty around diseases and such. How did your team, like having to work so closely with the animals handle um COVID like before we really knew more about the the disease and such did you have any concerns about interacting with any of your animals and possibly having like zoonotic transmission um so so I guess yes and no um because COVID was a kind of a novel virus that we didn't necessarily know how it was going to react but at the same time we deal with like, I guess, other infectious diseases that we have to worry about just human to animal. So certain species that we kind of have, you know, more, more kind of safety protocols. So a lot of our primates, and then uh, I guess primates are usually the the big ones that we kind of always wear a mask for, always wear gloves for, um, and depending on whether they're old world or new world, will kind of depend on whether it's we're worried about us giving them something or, or vice versa, them giving us something. And which one is so that a lot of for, our, for which? Um, so usually, and I say usually, cause there's always a outlier in all these, like, you know, I never say never and all or always, um, mm-hmm. but typically it's old world primates. Um, you're more concerned about them giving you something. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously you can give them something, but then the um, new world primates are usually you give, did I say that right? New world, you give them something. Old world, they give you something. So hmm. I always think of, and this is probably a terrible, um, I guess, thought, but it's like the Ebola and like, you know, the chimps and stuff like that. So like they're old world primates. They're the ones who can give um, diseases to you. Mm-hmm. And then if you think of your little marmosets and little cute monkeys, um, the human herpes virus can kill a marmoset. Fun fact. And also uh, lemurs is another one, which we just, that we had a case that when I was at UF, but, um, wow. but anyway, so yeah, it's, a, it's also a very, it's a very sad death because they basically have seizures and die. Yeah. And it's insane how, <laughs> sorry, it's insane how like certain diseases affect animals so differently than they affect humans. Yeah. We like yeah, to like, think that we're, we're all are, we all are connected, but sometimes in really bad ways. 
Well, yeah. And that's the thing too, is like, what is completely kind of, you know, not an issue in humans, the human herpes virus is, won't necessarily kill you, but it will kill mm-hmm. a marmoset and like vice versa. There's, you know, so um, we have macaques at Disney and they're a reservoir for herpes B, which mm-hmm. in them usually doesn't do anything, but in humans can kill you. Yeah. Um, so we have to take extra precautions when we're working with the macaques, which, you know, we have to do like full PPE and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, it's, it just kind of depends on where they are or what species you're working with and what diseases. And then always there's, there's new ones that pop up that like you, like COVID, you know, we didn't know that like tigers could get COVID and, and mm-hmm. other things. And, and yeah, you're learning, we're learning a lot more, I guess the longer we're on this earth because there's yeah. more and more things that will kind of kind of come so, out of it so. so going going back to like what you do with fish head was there ever a thought that you would turn to like pcr tests for covid at all in the last year were you not really interested in that um no just because um so partly it's it's just me and susan and um we have uh, basically created the PCR at the University of Georgia um, mm-hmm. in their infectious disease lab. So it's not me and Susan doing the PCR test, you know, mm-hmm. either in her lab or, you know, my basement or whatever. It's, mm-hmm. it's, um, it was, <laughs> I always joke because like people are always like, oh, you can just do like PCR testing anywhere. I'm like, yeah, but, you know, doing it at an actual like, you know, university that have IO cooks, they have like, you know, accreditations that they have to uphold they have like a whole bunch of like standards that they have to uphold to be able to do this kind of testing um and also they have like you know technicians and and veterinarians and you know all sorts of biologists and stuff who who kind of specialize in this um that uh because University of Georgia was a veterinary school they I they were not planning on doing any of the COVID testing and obviously me and Susan because we're not doing the PCRs uh, in-house, we're doing them um, with our partnership at uh, University of Georgia that mm-hmm. we weren't gonna plan on doing it either. But I will say, I was I was kind of expecting the amount of nidovirus tests to go down during COVID, but mm-hmm. it went up in COVID. And I think it was partly that people were, were home more, they were able to like, you know, maybe do something that they had been planning on doing, but they just didn't have time or yeah. they, you know, were, either buying more animals because they got a stimulus check or I don't know, I don't know what it was, but, but we definitely mm-hmm. found an uptick in nidovirus testing. Um, it's a good thing, you know, uh, people should be testing. Yeah, so, mm-hmm. yeah. And that's the thing is, I, I mean, I don't care who you test with just, you know, just test um, mm-hmm. and, and kind of make it not a stigma anymore of, of disease testing and quarantine testing and, and that sort of thing. So. Yeah. And, and that's something I wanted to ask you about too. Um, Erica Paris, who is a good friend of mine, she's the green tree keeper out in New Mexico. I interviewed her a couple mm-hmm. months ago. So check that out. She had a situation that she spoke on where she had a female green tree test negative like three times and then it mm-hmm. popped positive. Sorry, I shouldn't say pop positive. That's what Cody says. And now it's in my brain. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> she's now. And so I told I told them that like that's one of my like pet peeves and like when people say pop positive I'm like oh just don't say it. like all of a sudden like it's like surprise and positive it's like right. it was brewing back there for a little bit like it's not just all the I know sudden, and, but, and I listened yeah. to him on a on THP and that's what he kept saying and I 
was making fun of him in the chat with a I call it the PP count of like how many yeah. times he said it and so now that's in my head but oh she- if I, I was like I haven't heard that one yet because I'm I'm a little backlogged on some of my on some of my podcasts so I'll have to I'll yeah have well to there's a lot of them no, no judgment yeah <laughs> um so this animal did test positive after having been negative for a long time is that something uh-huh. you guys are seeing often because I feel like I'm seeing some animals um, like test positive that have had negative tests before. Yeah, I would say, I wouldn't say that it's like common, but I wouldn't say that it's uncommon either. And partly because it's now that we're testing more often, we're probably going to be seeing it more. But at mm-hmm. the same time, you know, depending on what's going on in the collection, and and I kind of use that as a like collections are a living, breathing thing. So it's, Mm -hmm. you know, you might've gone to the pet store and like touched something, or you might've gone to a reptile show and touched something, or you might've, you know, not done anything and stayed in your house for three months and, you know, been, you know, COVID quarantined and the animal will either, you know, have the virus and it'd be low enough that it's not, um, you know, coming up on a PCR because it has, there has to be enough viral load for the PCR to even pick it up. and then the other thing is the animal could have been infected during that time. And mm-hmm. it's so hard to be able to pinpoint which one it is. So, right. you know, it's, it's kind of a, you know, you kind of have to use some of your own logic and kind of think about things you did, and, you know, and that was kind of, you know, going back to our collection was, so we, we had two snakes that, um, that were positive for nidovirus back before we had that outbreak. Mm-hmm. And so, but we didn't know that they were positive until like, cause we had submitted them to um, CSU for all their research and stuff prior to, you know, all this other stuff. And that's kind of um, some of the samples that we were sending were cause um, uh, Dr. Jacobson asked if like, Hey, if you have any like, you know, dead snakes that had kind of a respiratory type thing, like, can we, can we test for this stuff? And we're like, sure, take them, test them. Like we want to mm-hmm. learn more of, of, of this. So, um, but what we did was with the, uh, the collection that we had and the outbreak that we had, we compared the strain of that virus to the strain that we had previously seen and they were not related. So we at least knew that it wasn't, you know, something that we had brought in versus the new collection coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that I think is not realistic for kind of the general kind of reptile keepers to do is to be able to sequence it and know what strain of the virus is because it doesn't, for one, it doesn't help pointing fingers and blaming other people for quote unquote mm-hmm. giving you nidovirus or things like that because it's so common. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second thing is whether it's positive with this strain or positive with this strain, usually the treatment plan doesn't necessarily change because you're treating clinical signs and you're treating you know, other things or treat secondary infections. If they don't have any secondary infections, then you can't really treat anything because an antibiotic won't fix a virus if there's no like other issues that are going on, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And um, are you working towards any, like anything to help if like, assuming there is something that can, can help appease or, or so alleviate it, syndromes? So, yeah. So, um, with last year's, um, carpet fest which happened literally a month before uh covid all happened yeah I, so, i'm God, kicking we were... myself that i didn't go i had to go to a stupid oh. 
snow tubing event for my sorority, or they were going to fine me a hundred dollars and I should have oh, gone really? to Florida. Yeah. It, don't even get me started. I was, I just needed friends. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were going to find me a hundred dollars. Yeah. So I was like, I'll just go to that instead. I could go to Florida whenever psych yeah. fucking COVID. Like, and then COVID. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so with those funds, uh, we were able to, uh, kind of split them to different research facilities. So, um, fish had got some of it and we were working on vertical transmission. So being able to tell whether the night of virus can be passed from the parents to the offspring. Mm-hmm. And then the university of Florida is working on other research projects. Um, and I don't always know what, what they're working on, but we're, we're basically making sure that, that UF fish head and um, it was Utah state university with um, Dr. Justin Julander. Um, mm-hmm. We wanted to make sure that we weren't working on the same things. Mm-hmm. Um, so that way we all have kind of different, we're, we're utilizing the funds to the best of our ability because with research and with obviously reptile research, um, there's never enough um, funding for, for the research that needs to be done. But um, Dr. Justin Julander was going to be working on some antiviral um, type things. So, so that's hopefully um, in the future that we might have a little bit of answers. But currently, there's no antivirals that I know of that um, are very beneficial for reptiles. Um, Mm. so so there yeah there might be some anecdotal stuff out there but um but currently I don't think there's any good literature out there especially for night virus um and some of the other viruses that are out there but so if someone yeah hopefully in the future so if someone is testing their collection and, and an animal comes up positive what is your recommendation um so I I feel like it all just depends on the person's ability to be able to separate the animal mm-hmm. from the rest of the collection, mm-hmm. um, because we do know that it's infectious and obviously we do know it's fatal, but at the same time, people are asked like, you know, if my, my snake has Nido, how long is it going to be that it's going to stay alive? And I'm like, well, it can stay alive for four days, four years or 40 years. Like we don't know. Currently there are snakes who have, who have been positive and have tested positive so we have some in our collection who were positive back in 2015 and mm-hmm. are still alive and, you know, no or minimal clinical signs um, right now. And that's what, six years later. And obviously now the more that we're doing testing and the longer we're going to be doing it, the more information we'll have. Um, but if you do have a positive, I would say, you know, be able to set like completely separate it into a different room and, you know, work that animal as it is infectious. So, you know, do that one last, have separate clothes, have a separate shoes, make sure you're, um, you know, either washing your hands, wearing gloves, using hand sanitizer, something like that in between. If the animal is clinical, um, work with your veterinarian for treatment options. Mm-hmm. Um, and that might even be euthanasia. So euthanasia is, I know that people always feel bad, but at the same time, it's, these, these are all kind of things that you have to talk to your vet about, talk about the clinical signs, um, mm-hmm. you know, think about how the animal is in your collection. Um, and I kind of, you know, I've said that if, if, I guess, if we didn't, if we knew all the stuff about nidovirus, I probably would have euthanized our, the collection of animals that were positive. But because we didn't know, and because we, there was so much unknown, mm-hmm. um, we felt kind of obligated and compelled to be able to keep these animals as long as we possibly could 
to be able right. to learn as much as we possibly could. But that being said, you know, 80% of our collection was positive. And so that meant that we had to bring 80% of our pythons into, you know, we had a completely separate building. So we had, uh, you know, a shed, you know, separate that we insulated and put an air unit in and, and completely, I was the one who's taking care or still am the one who takes care of all the Nido snakes and then Cody takes care of the rest of the collection. And so, you know, it's, I tell people, you know, it can be done. Like we've kept a negative and a positive collection for, you know, six years, but mm-hmm. it's not easy. Um, it definitely helps when you have a separate building. Yeah. It helps when you have a separate building. It helps when you have a second person. It also helps having two people who kind of have that, you know, infectious disease and, you know, kind of the zoo background to be able to know how to work quarantine, how to work the rest of the collection and how to do like, how to work rooms and how to like, you know, have a foot bath, have separate shoes, like, you know, the all in method, which is basically everything that I take into our Nido shed stays in the Nido shed and never leaves other than Mm -hmm. me. And then I have separate shoes that I wear in there. I have a lab coat that I put on over my coat or over my, my clothes. Um, and then I shower and change my clothes the second I get done. So that way I'm not transferring anything to the animals that we have, you know, in our, in our collection now. Um, right. But yeah, so I, I think it would just depend on, you know, how valuable the animal is. And that's not necessarily monetary. It's, you know, was that your first ball python and you, you know, loved it forever. And it's, you know, it's a normal or, or whatever the thing is, it, you know, value doesn't necessarily have to mean like, Oh, this is a $50,000 one. Um, but at the same time, it might be like, this is a $50,000 one not showing clinical signs. But at that, at that point too, is, you know, you have to also think of how the rest of the collection is going to play in. And mm-hmm. is it, you know, how, how is all that going to, going to happen? Um, but I will say if the animals are showing clinical signs or are suffering, then euthanasia is probably the best, the best option. So I want to dive a little bit more into RPI specifically. What are you guys doing? Mm -hmm. What are the ways that like we as listeners can help you with your mission? So can you kind of give me the elevator pitch? Oh, Oh, the elevator pitch. Um, so the things that we're currently working on, um, partly is, uh, doing professional training. So we work with uh, folks who either want um, training to be in the zoo field or just want more training with venomous um, and crocodilians. And so we kind of have a very um, new internship kind of program. We started it back in, I think, 20. So Paul was our first one. um, And I want to say it was two years ago. Um, But yeah, so we have a professional kind of um, training program. We also do... um, uh, breeding. So we work with either zoos or venom labs for the most part for any of our breeding. So depending on the species and we'll kind of depend on what our plan is for it. And so we don't breed just to breed. We need to make sure that we have a place for it. And that was kind of one of the things that we kind of moved away from um, with the kind of the business side of things with um, mm-hmm. breeding, you know, black mamas and things like that is there's only so many people in the world or in the United States who, who should be having black mambas and are capable of taking care of them. Um, and that's kind of where we kind of shifted gears and um, 
like our black mambas are going to a venom lab and um, they've already produced anti-venom to, to be able to help people um, who have been bitten either, you know, here in the States or in Africa. Um, so that's kind of a, a very nice kind of mission to be able to help other people by breeding and taking care of these animals and kind of the, what happened in the past is, um, you know, venom labs would get wild caught snakes from Africa and, for one, you're pulling animals out of the wild, which is not great for those animals and for kind of their habitat and distribution and things like that. And then also they weren't getting great um, kind of venom production. And also the animals were not as um, used to kind of the captive setting and things like that. So, you know, it's probably less safe for the, the person who's, who's doing the um, extraction it's also um, less beneficial for the animals because they stress out and they probably you know get sick and die and things like that which is also not good for a venom production because you want to be able to like you know like a cow you want to be able to milk it for mm -hmm. the, the you know for lifetime versus you know get three milks out of it and then it dies because it's stressed out and you know something happened so um, being able to to provide captive bred quality, disease tested, disease, you know, kind of screened animals to venom labs is, is kind of an important thing. Uh, so that way less animals are being taken out of the wild. Mm -hmm. And then the kind of the same thing goes for um, the conservation kind of side of it for breeding is working with species that have specific care um, in particular, uh, for us, we do a lot of montane species, so a lot of montane mm -hmm. vipers, and being able to provide, um, you know, these animals for either repopulation or for zoos to be able to work with um, SSP programs. Um, there currently isn't a lot for snakes and reptiles, but um, but that might be something that um, you know is going to be in the future. Uh, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, with um, this uh, new organization that we've kind of started foundering with a few other folks, um, mm -hmm. which I'll kind of give a little, a little plug, which is called RAPS. It's the um, World Reptile and Amphibian Preservation Society. Um, mm -hmm. So being able to kind of work with zoos and private people and things like that, kind of um, as I, you know, my idol, uh, Terry Barker, if ever, anybody has written or uh, read The Invisible Ark, um, mm -hmm. that is probably the most incredible book you could ever read. Um, but anyways, so being able to provide, um, you know, these animals either in human care for zoos and, and kind of places like that, or to be able to, um, you know, reintroduce them into the wild is, is kind of where, where we're at with, with the RPI. Um, i trying to think of there's kind of the other kind of part that we do is, um, is some research and things like that. So we're working, um, on different research projects and things like that with um, with uh, uh, disease uh, screening and, and kind of things like that. And then mm -hmm. hopefully we're gonna have, um, uh, be able to provide uh, experiences and education for kind of post-grads and um, kind of researchers and things like that who might need a specific experience with, with venomous and crocodilians. That's awesome. And then um, if folks want to either become a Patreon. So we do have a Patreon um, mm -hmm. that we don't post very much, um, but uh, we do we do videos and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. And then also uh, we have a GoFundMe um, for Cloud Forest Conservation. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, we just kind of go out and do outreach events, teach people about 
um, snakes and crocodiles and things like that and kind of try to get get the world on our side to help protect and, and preserve these species. Yeah, that's awesome. And I, I'm so excited to see your facilities. I've seen pictures and, and saying, I can't, you are I can't Patreon wait. Too, so we, we really, really appreciate it. Yeah, I am Patreon because it's, it's super important to support. I will include the links to your GoFundMe and the Patreon and the, the show yeah. notes for this episode. Um, it's great. I, I really admire what you guys are doing and, um, you're very like, you're a great couple. And then you're also just like great people individually, both doing really incredible things for the hobby. So oh, I appreciate you. it a lot. Yeah. Um, I mean, we hope, we hope to leave this place better than we found it and build something kind of bigger than we are. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's what we should all strive to do. So speaking of, you know, leaving a legacy and such, um, as we wrap up here, I always like to ask at the end, if a young girl came up to you and told you she wanted to get into veterinary medicine and wanted to start working kind of in the same field you do, what advice would you give her? I would say be a sponge, ask lots of questions, um, you know, take every opportunity you possibly can to either, you know, volunteer at a zoo, at a wildlife center, um, anything like that, find a mentor. Um, I think that's, that's the thing is being even just in kind of the veterinary field or the reptile field, like just find somebody to mentor you and kind of, it's, it's all kind of networking and meeting people and, and kind of letting the path unfold in front of you um, mm-hmm. and kind of letting, letting the experiences kind of put you where you need to be. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you so much, Pia. It has been such a pleasure You're to welcome. get to talk with you. Um, okay, and I, I, I really can't wait to see you and like, I'm so excited. Um, yeah, if, if anybody wants to come to the reptile preservation party. Yeah, I'm going to put the yeah, link to that. Gonna this be, is going to be a long show notes. It's all yeah. going to be in the, in the description. <laughs> There's so um, many things. Yeah. But Pia, if people but, yeah, want to reach out to you, where can they find you? Um, I'm in Florida. My address is saying, um, <laughs> so people can find me, uh, I know my socials. Um, so I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram, um, email, whatever people want to, um, find me. So I'm Pia Arrestio Bartolini on Facebook. I'm Pia Bartolini on Instagram. And then my um, email is Pia Bartolini CBT at Gmail. So I'm happy to answer questions, talk to people. Um, I mean, anything from NIDA virus to, I don't know, any anything else. So I feel like I'm a, a, a jack of all trades, master of none. Um, I'm, I'm just ha- like, I just hope to like give somebody more, you know, more information or, or help them find an answer or, or something like that. So, yeah. And if Pia doesn't know it, she'll point in the direction of someone who does. I'll, yeah. So I'll find, I'll find somebody who will. Mm-hmm. So. so once again, Pia, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to get to talk with you. Um, I really admire you a lot. Like I said, you're definitely a role model for me and it's, it's an honor to, oh. to get this chance to speak with you one-on-one and, and you can tell Cody, uh, I said, hi, but I, I don't want to interview him. Yeah. So I just want to Pia. Um, <laughs> I say he's, He's been interviewed enough. Yeah, come on. He's he's so the funny thing is is like like he's only like on these podcasts, he's only done like the tip of the iceberg of like stuff that he knows or like does or things like that. Like usually it's I don't know, it's just like little tidbits and I feel like I don't know. I I was gonna write a book about him just so I can like 
archive all the information that's in his brain because there is just so much you should but, i think that i would read it i'll help you ghostwrite. yeah <laughs> we gotta pick a title yeah <laughs> god i don't even know it's either uh, rattlesnakes in the kitchen and mama's in the bathroom or bedroom that's okay that's so funny because i was thinking rattlesnakes in the hotel room because <laughs> he told me that story um, so yeah so we had we, i've had rattlesnakes in my kitchen and i think my mm-hmm. kitchen is our kitchen but um Currently, we have a Gila monster in there. We've had an, an alligator in the kitchen. Um, and we have a corn snake in the kitchen, too, right now. And then, oh yeah, like, in our bedroom, we've had we've had mambas. We've had beaded lizards. We've had, you know, palm vipers. We've had, mm-hmm. you know. When people talk we, about adding uh, spice some... to the bedroom, that's not really what they mean, Pia. <laughs> no, you don't, you know, have some mambas and some, some venomous snakes. and. <laughs> yeah. some, some parviocula yeah like on cody's side of the bed there's parviocula on my side of the bed there's um some marchi which is pretty pretty uh pretty cool to be able to have yeah. that in our, i couldn't our, do that because i just i just slap the bedside table when i like turn my alarm off i oh. just like yeah you're like, oh. well and we have like so we also have snakes in our bathroom so like if you have to get like get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom it's just like I want to make sure there's not a snake, but I don't want to turn on a light because I don't want to like get blinded by it. So like mm-hmm. kind of play this game of like, but at least there's, um, we have those blue lights that, um, I don't know, are on some of the, I think they're like the, the moon lights or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so at least mm-hmm. I have like blue lights when I walk in so I can at least yeah. see what's on the floor. Um, that's but, too funny. But yeah. Oh my God. Oh, well, Pia, it's such a pleasure to talk with you. Um, everyone I am adding, the uh information for contacting pia getting in touch with rpi and going to the rpi event in the description of this podcast so please take a look um and please if you'd like feel free to follow me dominique defalco at defalco reptiles on facebook and instagram then we do have a podcast for excuse me an instagram for the podcast which is modern medusa podcast and once again we have our patreon though if you're going to choose one go with rpi you got to support really an awesome cause so say you can do out. both you can do both you can't do both, but if you have to choose, I get it. Well, I feel like everybody needs love. We all, I know, but there's only so much money to go around, so I'm not going to be greedy with it. Trust yeah. me. Um, oh. <laughs> but Pia, thank you once thank again. You one month, you yeah. No, yeah. thank you. It was my pleasure. I'm so glad that we got to do this. It's, I feel like we need to do this more often. So I know. Yeah. I wish. I I wish I lived closer. I just oh, we have. Well, um, I say I have a I have a two and a half hour drive, so you can always um, plan a. A phone call. We can plan. We can plan like that call where we don't. I have two rules for the podcast. I went over with Pia, so like we'll be have the the call that breaks the rules, and we can just talk shit. It'll be great. Um, (laughs) Well, once again, thanks, Pia, and thank you, everyone. Recorded. Yeah. Yeah. And thanks, everyone, for listening. This is the Modern Medusa podcast. We'll talk at you next week. Thank you. Thanks for listening. 